Hello, and welcome to the Wild Wonder podcast, where we seek to democratize and demystify holistic wellness practices by speaking with today's leading practitioners. Today, we have shadow worker, medium, explorer of the Akasha, and conduit, Sophia Tran Horniak. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. So I'm going to jump right in. The, you, mm-hmm. I had been following you for a little bit on Instagram. And then the post that made me reach out to you was this one. And I know it's odd to hear your own words spoken back to you. So allow me. (laughs) No, go for it. The intro. Here was the post. As a daughter of a Vietnamese Chinese immigrant, my heart deeply aches over what happened yesterday in Atlanta and of the rise in Asian American hate crimes. As I laid sleepless beside my daughter, I thought, what can I do? I've had my own bouts with seeming not that Asian, which, by the way, is never up for debate, period. As I moved past that, I decided I have something to say. This has to be talked about. As Asian Americans, we are constantly left out of the BIPOC conversation, and it has to change. So that was the beginning of a longer post, which I encourage um, folks to read. Um, and it made me reach out to you, but, and I'll, I'll explain why. But first, for those that don't know, could you describe in your own words what happened in Atlanta that made you write that post? Um, it's not necessarily Atlanta itself that that happened. It's the buildup of what's been going on, I would say, with COVID. But even before that, you know, when we talk about, uh, you know, uh, persons of color, it's always black, brown, indigenous. And it's never, uh, Asians are never included in that. And, you know, I think part of that detriment is our own programming. Um, if you know the histories of, uh, Asian Americans in the U.S., um, you know, we've been silenced over and over again. And so within ourselves, we're, we're kind of told to, um, you know, keep our head down, work hard, don't make a big fuss but I think it's working to our detriment and we become the butt of the joke. Mm-hmm. Um, and since COVID we're seeing these hate crimes on the rise and still being left out of the conversation, you know, we're, we're there, uh, you know, to support everybody else. Um, you know, not all of us, you know, you, you <laughs> kind of can't like group everybody together, but, but I feel like no one's speaking up on us, but that starts with ourselves. And we have to be able to speak up too. And so I just got frustrated. Like, when does it end? Where, where does it stop? And, you know, my son looks exactly like me and we live in a, a mostly white community, um, a pretty Republican community. Um, and it makes me really nervous. And then I laid there with my daughter and between that and the over sexualization of Asian women and, and fetishization, and then what kind of turned into like, you know, the whole, he had a bad day, he had an addiction. I mean, where does that stop? Like where, it, it was just so heartbreaking. And looking at my daughter, I was like, and she's eight months old um, and being a victim of, of sexual assault and sexual abuse and the fetishization, I just was like, I have to say something. This has to end. And we all have to speak up because ultimately in shadow work, it comes down to programming, coming up to the awareness that it's not working anymore and creating new neural paths and uh, doing something different in order to deprogram. Mm-hmm. And so since this is really essentially like ancestral, I don't want her to grow up to say, you know, I'm going to keep my head down. I'm going to like work hard and be a kind person, but you know, I'm just, going to deal that's not that's not me that's not her and that's not going to be acceptable moving forward so just so we all understand the psychology when you say the silencing of asian americans how does that work um can you provide an example of how asian americans are kind of programmed to stand back and be silent um and keep their head down and kind of work through it um so if you go back in history, when um, the Chinese uh, came over during um, the production of the railroads, um, you know, they really struggled for, um, A, for um, um, 
like relationships, right? Mm-hmm. And so um they wanted their women to come over and that was um that was deemed illegal because women's bodies were deemed um not appropriate. Chinese women's bodies were deemed not appropriate. So then um which a lot of people don't know when Asian Americans were trying or you know the Chinese were trying to date outside or whoever was available that is what really brought about the um the complete illegal you know um the mixed race marriage the, uh banning the mixed race marriage um and then there was uh the mass uh, the massacre um of the riots because um sorry during the riots of um i can't remember i'm sorry uh they're basically (laughs) like trying everything they can to have like just to seem human Hmm. and uh they raised up and there was i think it was like 200 lynchings that happened so you know what kind of help was that really to them um and I know for my own family, you know, coming over from Vietnam, my dad was just kind of like, this is just what he told me growing up, even though I'm mixed race. He's like, white people are always going to think they're better than you. They're always going to find something wrong in what you're doing. So just work really hard. Don't say anything, you know, be kind, but take no shit, but like, don't make a big deal. And I know that that's a common thing that's said in a lot of immigrant households, not just Asian Americans, but we do have a uh, lineage of you know speak when spoken to um fall in line um that that is a very common thing in our culture across all asian cultures so um why make a big deal and then there's also kind of the thing that i would see my family was like you know um african americans are making a big deal mexican americans make a big deal like look at what's going on with them so like just like if you're quiet you'll have more opportunity because ultimately we all came here for opportunity. So I think that that's where it kind of starts. And we just continued on that way. And even the Americanized Asians that have lived here, um, you know, we, we just kind of like take things in stride and there's a lot of humor that goes in it, but then we end up being the butt of every joke. So um, I think that that's, that's where it's like, why make a big deal? Why make a big fuss if we're kind of living well without doing it? Yeah, there's an idea of not drawing attention. I can attest to that as a first generation Cuban American. There's always the idea of like, just do your work, but don't do it out here where you can be judged or abused or number of things. Um, And just so we understand your background, I don't normally go into guest background, but you did say that your father is Chinese, Vietnamese. Vietnamese Chinese, yeah. Vietnamese Chinese. And your mother is from where? So my mother is Roma. um, And we found out uh, recently that uh, my great-grandmother, who got married on the boat when she was 13, uh, was actually Jewish. Um, So they, I mean, the Roma and um, Jewish people have a history of kind of intertwining with each other. Um, So when there's a mass uh, exit, from uh, the Hungarian, uh, Astro-Hungary area because of the Cossacks. Um, it was mostly Roma and uh, Jewish people. So uh, that that's our history. If you could describe what it means to be Roma, because I think there's an understanding sure. of that here. Sure. Um, so Romas are, they don't really have any specific location that they're from, you know, our, our root is in Romania and it's a very, very old lineage. Um, and if you go into the history of uh, Romania, which clearly we just saw, I'm not great with dates, <laughs> but um, you know, like any other country, there is a lot of pillaging coming on separate powers, but the Roma resisted. And what they did is they fled up into um, the, the uh, mountains and continued on. They did not want to be colonized. Um, but because of that, it's a very old, old uh, lineage, language, uh, tradition. <clears throat> they kind of have been stuck with this wandering um, culture. So there's a lot of Roma in the U.S. Uh, in, you'll see them in England, uh, Spain, North Africa, uh, Greece, which is where uh, ours is kind of between Romania and Greece. Mm-hmm. Um 
and they're travelers, but it's a very old tradition and they typically don't like to go outside of their tradition because they've worked so hard to keep it. But it is also one of the uh, most um, oppressed and um, highly um, disenfranchised uh, cultures and peoples that, that live outside of, uh, I would say, the Jewish culture in Europe. I think there's a great honor in that. It sounds like um, the core of their belief system is a denial of empire and being the ultimate yeah. ruler of how they live and what they believe and holding right. on so strongly to their own belief system and their own history and their own roots and their own ancestors to the point that they're willing to sacrifice um, kind of blending in and doing what everybody else yeah. is doing to get along. Yeah, and sacrifice opportunity. I mean, really. Right. Um, and, you know, growing up, we grew up extremely poor. Um, I grew up in a one room, a one bedroom shack half of my life. We lived in a trailer the other half, um, you know, uh, because the blending in doesn't work. Um, and it's funny coming over here. My grandmother was like, we blended with other people that were also it's it's more of a tradition and a culture match. Mm -hmm. uh, than anything else versus like, let's just work it out and try to be like everybody else. And I think that for me, it works out because I have one side of my lineage that is very, very traditional. I'm very proud of their culture, but will keep their head down and, and, you know, uh, go for opportunity. And then I have another side of my culture that is like, no, fuck that. Like, let's just <laughs> <laughs> think about it, you know, do, do you. So, um, I think it puts me at a very um, unique perspective. Yeah. And then, but here in the United States, when those two groups of people meet, they, mm -hmm. I guess they kind of combine because they're both outsiders. They can't right. become part of the main society. And so they find these bonds through each other. Right. Yeah. And I would say, because of that, uh, you know, I definitely felt like a complete outsider my whole life. Um, but I think, you know, there's a lot of us that feel that way. And that's the beauty of being multi-race and multi uh, or mixed race is um, we're supposed to be the evidence of like blending of love. Like it doesn't matter where you come from. We, we like each other enough <laughs> yeah. to, to do this. <clears throat> so it's tough when we're seeing all of this, um, Stuff happen in the world that is heartbreaking and gut wrenching, and then to be in a place of of where do I stand? Where do I fit in? Because I know for a fact that most people of mixed race don't fully fit into one or the other. So we kind of feel like we're on this line, and unless you find someone else that has the exact same match as you, um, you're always gonna feel that way. So um, I think that's what I meant in my in my post was I I I wasn't sure if I could say anything because even in my own culture with Vietnamese people, even though I spoke Vietnamese, um, went to school, learned how to read and write because I don't look Vietnamese. Um, I would always get like, I mean, aunties are aunties, but aunties will definitely put you down and make you feel terrible about yourself. And I didn't fit. I wasn't Vietnamese enough. I was like, my face was too round or too like American. It wasn't round enough. I wasn't slim enough. Um, so it, it just like kind of put me in this place. Like, what, what do I say? But you have to say something, right. you have to stand up and this has to stop. And when I look at my children, it doesn't matter how I feel or what I've gone through. It matters for what is left for them. Yeah. It's a way of seeing if we could begin to see ourselves as the bridge. I think yeah. that's the great power in these mixed perspectives. Correct. Because so often the, the big, the conversation happens where like, okay, there's Black Lives Matter and then there's like the Asian American Pacific Islanders and then there's the Cuban Americans and then there's the X, Y, and Z. So it works against us to continue to put each yes. group in their box. One of the great right. things I saw, at least in my community, was there's always been a split between Haitians and Cuban Americans. And that happens because um, Cuban Americans get more um, immigration rights, to put it in an easier way. And so there's always been some tension between the two groups. 
And then during the last election, for the first time, at least in my life, I saw the two groups come together in the street. And I'm like, this is it. This is how yeah. we fight empire. This is how we get ahead and not by continuing to split hairs and put everybody in their box. It's by actually yeah. coming together and see our similarities and how we're all oppressed you know, in this system. Yeah, I think that the more we separate ourselves, the more we're missing the bigger point. And especially in spirituality, you know, when we talk about polarities and the unification is the is what we're trying to obtain, right? So when we continue to separate ourselves um, outside of of what we're the main point of what we're trying to do, it's just it's just going to create more fighting amongst ourselves, which is which is what we're seeing, you know, um, Asian Americans, um, the gap, the wealth gap between Asian Americans is the highest gap between all immigrants. And so what we're doing is we're literally watching Asian Americans and, and African Americans in the same neighborhood and the same, um, situations fighting over resources. Mm-hmm. So the more we can, continue to separate ourselves the more they win because they want us to fight amongst ourselves so we don't unify you know so it's that's the bigger scope of it um and so I think that it's it's unique to be in my situation or anyone else that's mixed race to to see this you know and the conversations that I have with my friends that are mixed race or um or you know persons of color versus my white friends is completely different um, you know, it, there is a lot of code switching and there's a lot of creating safety. And I, I don't, I, I feel like that's exhausted its time. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So how does that, so I'm trying to build the parallel between sure. spiritual practices, right? So you have mm-hmm. a mother that's Jewish and Roma and you mm-hmm. have a father that's Vietnamese, Chinese. And yeah. with those two ancestries and those two lineages, there's different belief systems, there's different cultural norms. And how do you, well, first, how do you experience these two worlds? And secondly, how do you bridge the gap? How do you bring them together? Sure. Um, so I had a, a very interesting childhood. Um, it wasn't it was definitely filled with trauma and um, uh, the majority, I was given up uh, the day I was born and my grandmother is the one who came to get me. So um, I was raised majority of the time with my grandmother and um, she was initiated in um, her people's uh, magical lineage. There was never really a name to it. It was just what we did. Now, all of us, have this ability to speak the spirits to see and that was very normal in our house to wake up and talk about our dreams or what we saw or who we talked to or you know that's very it was very normal but that was something she was like that we can't talk about this outside of the house because my grandmother would say like you don't know who actually wants a piece of your hair so she was just saying essentially you don't know who's out there doing stuff you don't know who's out there that has this ability and you don't know who's going to oppress us because of this ability so like keep it in the house but um each generation somebody kind of gets picked and I was chosen um mostly because I could see things I could speak to things I could I knew when things were going to happen and it used to terrify me as a kid I mean I I slept with my grandparents till I was 12 because I was so terrified of everything um you know when you have things speaking to you and and telling you things are going to happen and you can see things physically it's it's very terrifying. So my grandmother thought it was important that I get that under control. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, she taught me the practices of candle magic, um, of clearing, of banishing, of um, speaking with spirit, dream work, um, that sort of thing. But it, it, it caps at a certain amount because mm-hmm. it's, it's her lineage. Right. Um, with my dad, uh, he, he's an interesting guy. Um, he was trained in the foothills of Wei, uh, by a foot doctor. So he saw all sorts of weird stuff. Um, his foot doctor essentially is like a, a root worker, um, that also works with spirit as well. Um, and so when he was trying to evade joining the military in Vietnam, um, my grandfather sent him there. So 
Um, and he also is uh, a black belt in Taekwondo and uh, trained in Kung Fu. And I, I trained in all of that growing up as well. So energy was a big part of uh, growing up when I was with him. So he taught me how to walk in a room and switch the energy in the room, mm-hmm. uh, which again, to a 14 year old is like, why are we talking about this? I want the new Limp Bizkit CD. What are we? <laughs> but, um, but looking back on it, it's so cool, you know, like, <laughs> um, so, uh, since I left home when I was 16, you know, I kind of shut things down because it was too intense. Uh, in my early twenties, uh, it came back with a force. It was like, basically like, you cannot ignore us. Um, I had a dream and it brought me to a botanica in Philly. And there, that's where they taught me even more about, um, like, uh, I learned some about Santeria. I learned some about hoodoo. I learned more about candle magic. I learned more about, you know, manifestation and, and drawing and all of that stuff. Um, and I was lucky enough to have an adopted mother who uh, is Puerto Rican and um, her lineage is Santeria, but she taught me about the Akashic Records. And I didn't really understand, like I, I had been there, I knew it, I didn't really click the concept until my 30s. Mm-hmm. So I had a very, like, spiritually speaking, I had like the dream right. of being raised. <laughs> physically, yeah, like physically speaking, not so much. Yeah. You know, there was a lot of um like, you know, because of aroma, like poverty, mental illness, drugs, jail, abuse, lots of abuse. Mm-hmm. Um so my grandmother kind of nurtured me and held me as long as she could um until um I met my adopted mother and then uh, just kind of figured it out on my own moving forward. But um, in my t- late 20s, I was lucky enough to find teachers, Akashic teachers, uh, Bhakti teachers, um, uh, ceremonial magic teachers, hermetic teachers. So, uh, you know, I, you know, it's that saying when the student is ready, the teacher shows. And I think going through all that, they had taken me as far as they could take me and it was time to move forward. Is it fair to say that all this energy work, even though on surface it was very different, is it fair to say that it's the truth in different costumes? A thousand percent. <laughs> One thousand percent. You know, and and it's the same thing. You know, um, we it, in ritual we honor our ancestors and we give them water, we give them food, we give them flowers. We, you know, we honor the altar and and call in or or ask for it. But we do the same thing in Buddhism. We we honor our ancestors. We give them food. We say a mantra. You know the same thing in Bhakti. So it the, the energy is what I've learned ultimately um, because I started getting into quantum physics and and all of that because you sort of have to at this point. It's just all one big energy that gets transmuted and and moved to be usable somewhere else. So I stay away from things like negative energy because. It's there for a reason. It's all, it's all divinely has a divine, um, job right. to do what it needs to do to teach you what you need to, whether it's boundaries or, or a lesson, whatever. And as you process it, transmute into something usable. It all, you know, right. circumambulates. Right. It comes full circle. Yeah. And when we, just like, um, certain marginalized communities are left out of the conversation, I also feel like in the spiritual world, there's certain, mm-hmm marginalized communities practices are left out of the conversation at least here in the united states i felt always when i'd go to trainings um that there was a very specific way to speak about energy and spirit and it was based on the you know anglo-saxon or european culture or belief system um or if i was in yoga training it was based in the hindu practices of india and I always felt, that, at least in my beginning years, and I think only now looking back on it, I was like, I didn't really connect with either of those two things because I don't hold it in my bones. Like I understand yeah. it on a conscious level, but I don't feel it, you know? And I think mm-hmm. when we, we don't uplift these voices from other cultures, then we're, we don't allow for certain groups of people to really understand what this work is. Yeah, I also feel, um, because I've taken my yoga training as well, um, 
I think some of that too is the filter it comes out of, right? In the US, a, a lot of our teachers are white and Anglo-Saxon. And so the filter that it comes through versus the filter that would come through uh, a, a, Hindi, a Hindi like mm-hmm. teacher is going to be very different yeah. because I think there is a a padding of safety, a padding of gentleness or what is perceived as spiritual. Um, and so then I, you know, I had the same problem. I wanted to take my training for so long, but I was like, I do not resonate with these people, with this energy. I don't get it. And it took until um, I met this yoga teacher and she um, she actually passed away the weekend after I met her, but she was like punk rock, super cool, like in her own, like spoke the way she wanted to speak. And I was like, yes, like, this is cool. This is authentic. Okay, I'm going to do it. And um, when I got there, it was still the same energy. But when I, when I really processed the philosophy on my own, when I started to read the Gita, when I started to read uh, Radha Swami, then I understood it in a different way. Then I processed it in a different way versus how it came out. Because we all have our own individual filters. And that's the beauty of healers. We're not supposed to be exactly alike because our filter is supposed to attract who needs it in that way. Um, and so I think that that is kind of not a problem, but it does remove some of us away because we don't resonate with that, that gentleness and the softness because our history and our, what is in our bones is uh, trial and error and strife and trauma and hard truth. Right. Um, and we resonate with that more than something that feels like spiritual bypassing. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Like that good vibes only crowd that every time I see, I'm like, oh, no, yeah. <laughs> I can't get on board. See, I love a tower moment. Let me break something <laughs> so I know I'm going to be better. Let's go. Like, <laughs> I've been through it. Yeah, I'm like, know, that's, um, that's just not my history. There's a, actually, there's a, a, I don't know if it's Roma, but it's definitely um, Spanish traveler proverb that goes bury me standing because I've spent a lifetime on my knees and I'm like yeah that's it that's yeah it. yeah I, I I think I I talk a lot about um look we can't just write something on a piece of paper and burn it every full moon that's just not how it works <laughs> it, it doesn't so I I feel that for sure and then born from that strife I always think about that's also the power of some of these marginalized communities that have gone through so much. Like, I always think when, when something feels oppressive, I'm like, fine, fight me on the ground. I can fight here Mm -hmm. on the ground. I can't fight up here in like niceitudes, but you want to get in the dirt with me? (laughs) Like that I can do because I've done it. You know, that's, that's the strength of having gone through some of these things. I think that, uh, you know, something I was, I, I heard my teacher say when I was doing my bossy training was um, the, the a person was like, I just believe that nonviolence is more important. And he said, it's it's not nonviolence. It's the fact that you can create violence, but you choose nonviolence. So meaning like we can come to another way, but it means that I won't necessarily use my strength. And, and in Kabbalah, you know, the pillar of, or the sphere of strength is, is right across the sphere of mercy. Mm-hmm. Because if we give and give and give and give and give, we're not going to have anything left. So strength is, it's severity is really important to set boundaries, to shut the window and not let people in, to be able to under, and so if we're gentle and flowing and doing whatever and interpreting things to make us feel gentle and good about ourselves because the world around us is hard, then we're not learning the true lessons that these sages and mystics have given us. Mm -hmm. So there has to be a balance and that strength. It's like the strength card. We have to be able to learn how to stick our hand in the lion's mouth. And by doing that, we have to use a a nice balance of, of strength and gentleness mm-hmm. to be able to stand firm and also you know see things for what they really are you know and absolutely to be and to bear witness because i think what you were saying earlier in our conversation about the violence against the aapi community 
is the ability to finally speak up, you know, like, okay, we don't have to just be nice and keep our heads down and, and plow through. We can also stand firm and begin this conversation. Yes. Um, and I think part of that is, you know, I, I do appreciate people wanting to be an ally, but part of that is the, the biggest part I think a lot of us have and but I, I say us, I say, you know, marginalized people is that the allies always want to speak for us. Yes. And it's important that you allow us to speak and hear us. And listen. And that reminds me of a conversation we had before this podcast episode where we were speaking on the parallels between really listening to others, mm-hmm. to maybe those voices that are often not allowed to speak or those voices that we don't give credit enough to speak. And our ability to be able to listen to our own shadow, the things we don't yeah. want to see and hear about ourselves. Um, so before we step into that conversation, can you give a brief description of what you believe the shadow is? So we set a base. Sure. So um, at the core of a lot of my practices with shadow, uh, Carl Jung obviously is one of my favorite uh, people to study. Um on top of that, you know, um, Eliseus, uh, Levy and, um, Paul Foster Case. But, um, what shadow to me is, is, um, it's not this yucky, mucky thing that we have to get rid of. I hear a lot of people saying get rid of shadow. That's not really how it works. And that's not really how energy works, mm-hmm. right? We just talked about transmuting, um, things that are usable. So, what you want to do is uh, transmute the energy into something that will fuel your light. So essentially think of shadow as like this, this wall in front of your light. So that when things are um, thrown at you, for example, like guilt, shame, um, things that have been, you know, deemed unacceptable by society or your family because of your light, because of your primordial energy and your your individualization the thing that's like I want to be different I want to do something completely different well you know sometimes that's not deemed that way and then you're shamed and felt guilty about it so it's this wall and so all that stuff sticks onto it that's how I I sort of see it so this wall if we use it as a personification of the higher self the same way um we would talk to higher self for something we can talk to shadow because it knows all the the deep secrets it knows all the stuff that we sometimes avoid or it's in the back of our memory and so shadow is like that friend that like is your best friend but will like tell you the truth and you're like oh I hate you but like you're right that's shadow right and so if we utilize shadow in that way shadow is always going to tell us the truth as to why we do certain things so we can you know find ourselves in a relationship and we always we we're, we're aware that you know we maybe we push people away all the time and we say we get into a moment and say shadow why am I pushing this person away and shadow will say well because when you were a child you were abandoned so you have this idea that people are always going to leave you so before they leave you you push away because you're in survival mode but we want to get out of survival mode we want to live and we want this light to flow and so the more we deprogram what is happening so you can say shadow um what is a small practice I can do to stop pushing people away um and you know shadow may it may be pretty interesting what shadow will say to you the more you start working with that energy the smaller shadow will get shadow's always going to be there though because if there's always a light there's always a shadow but then your that energy fuels your light and it, it allows that to grow and so um something that i recently went through was um I didn't even realize it. I was like, Shadow, why do I have such a problem being like weird, like talking about all this stuff? Like, why, why do I hide it outside of the fact that my grandmother told me not to? And I realized my uncles used to make fun of me when I was a kid, so much so that I used to run away and hide and they would find me and continue to make me like make fun of me till I cried. So I was always embarrassed and made fun of. And so I was afraid of that. And I only found that out by working with Shadow. And that was something, a memory I had locked away. I didn't even think about. I was, you know, and in general, I don't get embarrassed very often. I was like, I don't get it. And then I 
I saw it. Like they used to call me weird and, and like freak and like, these are grown ass men. So of course that's scary to me as a little girl. And they're like, we're just picking on you. We like you. So I didn't understand it. And uh, so shadow is kind of like your best friend that will fuck you up with some truth. Right. Um, <laughs> she's got the key, but ultimately she wants you to do good. So if you work with shadow in that way versus trying to constantly get rid of it, um, you will have a much smoother uh, transition. So working with the shadow, what is the great gift? Uh, the great gift, I would say, is um, a faster track and clearer insight into what is blocking or what uh, it is that you need to unravel in order to really touch in and shine with your divine light. Um, I think if we are avoiding the truth, we're never going to be able, or it's a longer route to find the answer or the way. I mean, it's never going to be cut and dry. It's just not. And it's always going to be a process. Even once you've learned the lesson, you know, we have to turn and start, start exercising the belief itself in the face of whatever issue it is. So, it it does take time regardless. So when I say fast track, it's not um, like, here's the answer. You know, <laughs> there, there, there are enough uh, people out there with custom design um, shadow work prompts that, you know, sure, they, they work, but there's integration that goes into that. There's creating the neuropaths. And like any other road, you have to walk it a few times before that path is created. So um, I think when you work with shadow and you see that it's not afraid, you do let go of a level of fear, a film of fear, if you will, um, when you open that brand new peanut butter, right? Um, because you're not so afraid of this thing that's deemed dark and gross and scary because it's not. It's just protecting your light. And there is an avoidance for a lot of people with shadow. Yeah. I just yeah. someone recently... Um, when I first started the podcast, the first episode was on shadow work and we sent out a shadow work, a basic, like get started with your shadow kind of meditation. And this person said to me, it's been sitting on my printer for the last six months and I keep taking it out, looking at it and then deciding not to do it. Where do you think that avoidance mm-hmm. beyond the obvious that like, um, we want to look at our stuff? Yeah, we, I mean, that's really what it is. I think that, and, you know, when we go through things like shame and guilt and, and fear, it's, it's our story, right? It's just us. No one else, even if you were there, your point of view is completely different. So it's just us and it's isolating and it leaves you in a vulnerable place. So when we're afraid to look at those memories or look at that kind of stuff, we also think like I'm alone. And what happens when you're going through a panic attack or anxiety or, or sadness or fear? Your first thought is somebody save me from this. But ultimately, it's it's up to you to save yourself. Now, shadow work, um, I don't recommend that by themselves. You should have somebody like a shadow worker or a therapist or somebody that you can bounce these things off of because, you know, that's the important part of it is the community mm-hmm. that's around you, you know, um, there is uh, like it's the same idea with uh plant energy that um people are, are taking to jumble stuff up and but you know these practices that are ancient and traditional also had a a, a thing in place with the community around them to help you know nurse them back into society whereas people are paying thousands of dollars to go in a vision and then they come right back to their cell phones and work so it doesn't work the same. So with shadow work, it's important to have a support system. It's, support, it's important to know that you don't have to do it alone. Um, and I think it's important to know that it's going to be your experience. You're in the driver's seat of this. I, as a shadow worker, I'm not in here to tell you necessarily what you see, what this means, what to do. I'm there to guide you and help you collect your symbols, your synchronicities, and help you uh, stand there as you dump your bag out on the table. Um, so I think a lot of it is the isolation and the fear of reliving it alone. Right. So you once said to me that the shadow is really like the underdog in the spiritual community. Um, I'd like to bring that back. Yeah. And if you could explain what you mean by that. 
Um, I think that uh, there's a lot of, I will say shadow seems to be a buzzword right now. Just um, <laughs> shadow and integration, like all of that stuff is buzzword. And like in any, you know, uh, community or or career, there's always going to be, you know, pushing the needle forward or at the end of the day, like there's always going to be a buzzword. Um, but I think a lot of people have the wrong idea. I think a lot of people are looking at it from perspective of letting go and releasing. But if you uh, practice any uh, traditional lineage, you would know that if you are cleansing or clearing and you're emptying your space, you have to put something back. If you if you if you let everything out, it's empty and that allows stuff to come back. So you have to put something back into it. Um, and so I think that. People use it as a buzzword, but they completely misunderstand the point of shadow. And, you know, I always tell people good and bad, you know, good and evil, dark and light. It's all relative. It's just it does the same thing. It has its own job. It's just, you know, it's equal. So we can't constantly look at shadow as a bad thing, as all the bad stuff. Um, and honestly, not that shadow isn't necessarily always something that we did or our perception. Sometimes it's from another consciousness. Sometimes it's from um, an ancestral line. Um, there's there's so much to unpack with shadow, and I feel that it's kind of like the the new kid in class that people are interested in, but like aren't taking the time to get to know. Right. Right, so we could even, going back to marginalized communities, marginalized communities now are kind of a buzzword, right? It's like really in vogue to be part of some kind of activist group amplifying marginalized voices. At the same time, I don't feel that we as a community are listening or getting to know the new kid, right? Especially if they weren't part of our lives. Yeah, and that's uh, the problem I kind of struggle with is like, you know, again, when I have these conversations with my, um, other friends that are, you know, of immigrant parents or mixed or, or, um, whatever, um, we kind of feel like, like, this isn't new. This, right. this isn't new to us. Where were you? Like, just because it's new to you, you know, it's kind of like almost, some of it is performative and then some of it, which really is disgusting to me is almost like um a collecting there's a lot of collecting um going on and what I mean by that is like now I really want to um have these people work for me now I really want to speak out on it now I want to and it's like growth and I know that maybe the intention isn't there to be that way but we notice it we see it um so, uh, you know, oh, now we have a new um, Spanish yoga teacher. Like that kind of stuff is really icky and gross. We want you to hire us. We want you to want to include us, but based off of our merit, not off the color of our skin. So now you're just doing the same thing with a weird, different intention. Um, it's strange. And I feel that people of, of mixed lineage, we're getting... The weird, or even people that are like white facing, are getting the weird, like bouncing off ideas. Oh yeah. Uh, and it's and it's that is really offensive and gross and weird. Um, I've had somebody say like, "Well, they stopped at my store. I just want one of them to work for me." And I'm like, "Are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> this is the conversation you're having with me? You know, like, um." strange and it's gross and it's weird and then there's policing that's happening so I think what we're doing what happens is it's like a colonization of of our cry for help or not help but our cry to hear us of our our position um, that's getting colonized into this weird uh, profitable thing that is um, frustrating Yes. And it's frustrating and it's gross and it's weird. And, um, you know, the, it's the same thing with the white sage. It's like you see a lot of people and, you know, it is a it is something very sacred that should be left to that tradition. 
but in the same, the same people are also doing, um, the cow ceremonies. And it's like, well, where's the, where's the equal, you know, where, what are we doing here? Like, what are we doing? So, um, you know, I think that what people don't understand is that we are not your buffet. I think there's a difference between going around and picking and choosing on what you want. And colonization means you're watering down and making a mockery of a tradition. But if you're taking the time, I've met some amazing Boxy teachers and um, Tai Chi teachers and like amazing people that are, are white or black or any. But if you're taking the time to learn the tradition from an elder who you are committed to, then that's very different because you're sacrificing your time, you're sacrificing something, and you're showing up with humility versus I'm picking and choosing what I want on a buffet. I'm putting Absolutely. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that you necessarily, like I said, it doesn't mean you have to necessarily, you know, the color of your skin translate to that tradition. I've met an amazing, like, hoodoo practitioner who is white. And as far as she knows, she's only white now. I'm sure she was something else in another lifetime. And that's a whole nother bag. But, you know, she shows up with humility. She's been taught by elders. She's initiated. She's respectful. She, and she knows her shit. You know, and it doesn't mean that, you know, out the gate, you have to know exactly what you want to do. It's okay to wander around and figure it out, but just be respectful and careful of what you're doing. And when you have recognized the thing or the things that seem to connect to your thing, then take the time to have the discipline to show up and um, show up with respect and humility. And if somebody from that tradition is like, no, I'm not accepting this, you cannot argue that. You have to just step back and say, okay, I'm, I'm going to keep moving on. But it's a sacrifice for a sacrifice. I think we're, a lot of people are cool with being performative or like, you know, picking and choosing and, and kind of trying things on. But we don't want to get into the muck of this collective shadow. Yeah. I think that, you know, if you're, if you have a meditative uh, practice, um, or even a ritual practice, I would, uh, implore you to find the tunnel in your heart and walk through it to meet shadow because that's where shadow lies. Um, introduce yourself to shadow and just ask shadow, where is it that I, um, struggle to be the student in my life? And where is it in the collective, collective good that I struggle to be taught? Um, where have I assigned myself the position of underdog, whether it's by my own accord or somebody else? And what people or who in my life do I assign that position and why? What is the common denominator? Um, because really it's all a reflection of, of ourselves is what we're trying to avoid. I think that in general, there's so much at our fingertips. And we're so used to having so much information and it's so quick that we're not giving ourselves the time to learn and to have discipline and take lessons and learning seriously. So, you know, where is it in my life that I'm not taking the time to learn and where can I apply that in my material life? It's absolutely not something we promote as a culture, right? To be the student, yeah. to be humble, to be truly vulnerable and not performatively vulnerable. I think, yeah, to really get down deep into the shadow. Um, this is a probably a conversation that could go on for another two hours. <laughs> but what I really wanted to do was create a base for people to really um, begin to question who it is they truly listen to, who it is they hold in high enough regard to be a teacher for them, and how that parallels to their ability to honor and be humble before their own shadow and take their shadow on as a teacher. Um, and I thank you for sharing your wisdom for, with us and for allowing us to hear your perspective, because I think it's much needed. Um, but before I let you go, I would like everyone to know where they're able to work with you because I just had my first 
Akashic Records meeting. And it it was brilliant. I want to say it blew my mind, but it really blew my heart. That's what I actually felt. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I can put into words what happened. I mean, I could, but it would do a disservice. What I really felt was a deep-seated relief and rootedness at the end of it. And um, so thank you for that. Um, and I want other people yeah, thank you for trusting me. Of course, to experience that too. So, where can they find you? Um, so I'm on Instagram at Divine Void Botanica. Um, you can go to my website, uh, divinevoidbotanica.com. Um, on the face of the website, I have a whole thing on shadow and and how you get started. So if you are you know you've heard of it but you're not sure what it is, um, I implore you to check that out. Um, I'm not a fan of calling it shadow work because that, you know, that work is something you do in order to survive and I want us to live. So uh, I like to call it communing with shadow. Um, under my products um, and services, I do do Akashic readings, um, but I do do a communing with shadow one-on-one. Um, through April, it's actually on special for uh, $120 for two sessions. Mm-hmm. So we do your um, initial session where we talk about what you're trying to work through. I do a intuitive session to see what spirit has to say. And then I walk you through a uh, set of meditation and energy work. So you can meet with shadow and speak with shadow. And then we do some homework and then we meet again and do the same thing. Um, I also do a monthly um, set of energy. I'm trying to figure out, find the name for this modality. So um, (laughs) bear with me, but um, it is by, you just simply send me your email um, via DM and you can Venmo me um, whatever you like. Um, and, and yeah, that's what I have going on. Very cool. Um, I'd like to thank you again for offering to the world. Yeah, I'm excited to, I hope, you know, I give somebody uh, some insight or at least feel less alone out there. Yeah, and this is just the beginning of a greater conversation. So I want to encourage people that have listened to this podcast and have more questions to please reach out to one of us. You can find Sophia mm-hmm. at com, and you can find me at wearealovewonder.com. Um, so thank you. This was great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Of course. See you soon.